Our Bible reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 22, I'll read verses 34 through 40. That's found on page 1,539 in your pew Bibles. And as um, Christy already alluded to, it's the beginning of a new series, supposed to begin last week, but it's the beginning of a new series called Formed by Jesus. So all the sermons in this series will come from the Gospels, and they are texts where Jesus is trying to form us through his words and through his deeds. So there, in all these texts and all these teachings, Jesus is showing us the true shape of the Christian life. So in effect, if, 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 while we listen to these texts and these sermons, if we open ourselves up to the Spirit's work, it'll be as if Christ himself, by his Spirit, is putting his hands on us and molding us into the shape that he intends to give us. This morning's text, I will venture to say, is the most important of all Jesus' formation texts. Why do I say that? I say that because Jesus pretty much says that in our text. Listen. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. They wanted to test him. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you grew up in the church or spent any time in the church at all, the love commandment of Jesus is, is uh, really familiar to you, right? You've heard it a million times. I'm hoping that you'll be able to hear that love command to love God and love your neighbor. I hope that together we'll be able to hear it in, as if for the first time this morning. Because um, that command was also very familiar to the Pharisees, to whom Jesus was speaking, the Pharisees who came to test him, saying, what is the most important commandment? And what Jesus does is he takes two different commands from the Old Testament, puts them into one and answers their question. And both those commands that he, that he takes and puts together in one were incredibly familiar to them. The first part of the commandment is the most familiar to them because it comes from the Shema which is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. And for any observant Jew back then, the Shema was something, it was like a Bible verse that they recited every single day with their prayers. It was almost like a kind of pledge of allegiance. And it's called the Shema because that's the first word of that passage in Hebrew. Shema Israel, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength, okay? He said that every day so, so that the Pharisees would have been able to recite that verse in their sleep. And to that verse, Jesus appends a little bit of Leviticus, Leviticus 19, verse 18, which says this, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So Jesus makes the great commandment, the one that we know so well by taking these two bits of scripture in answer to that question, what is the most important commandment? There it is. Love God, love your neighbor. 
What is very unconventional and surprising about what Jesus does here is the level of importance he gives to these two commandments, to this commandment to love. He says that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Hang on them. And the word picture here is two stout pegs, two very strong pegs hammered into a wall. And then all the law and the prophets, which is all the rest of scripture, all the other laws, all the other prophets, hang like a bag from a string on those two sturdy pegs. With those two pegs in place, the law and the prophets keep their proper position. If those two pegs go away, everything comes crashing to the ground. Without love of God and love of neighbor in place, the Ten Commandments lose their place and come crashing to the ground. Without love of God and love of neighbor in place, all the prophetic words of Isaiah and Amos and Jeremiah, all those words about justice and righteousness lose their place and come crashing to the ground. Without these two commands in place, all of the other 613 Old Testament commandments observed by Jews lose their place and come crashing to the ground. It all hangs on them, says Jesus. All of the stuff, all the works of faith, all the words of faith, all the books we write, all the judgments we make, we make hang on these two commands. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. That's Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, and he's getting it from Jesus. He's taking it straight from Jesus. It's the same thing Jesus is saying in this text. It is impossible, impossible to overestimate how important love is and how central love is to the formation of Christians who follow Jesus Christ. When Jesus puts love so firmly at the center of our ethic and our moral life, um, it seems to me that that is both good news and bad news. The love command is, in its own way, both good news and bad news for us, and I want to take those one at a time. It's good news, I think, because the love command makes things so beautifully simple. Right? If you study Christian ethics in depth, um, you know that you can get a PhD in this subject, right? You can go to a, a school for five years and get a PhD in Christian morality. And even if you take just a college-level class on ethics, they'll give you a book, it'll be thick, and it'll have lots of footnotes, and you'll read it, and you'll be confused, okay? In parts. And you will think, oh my goodness, ethics are hard. But Jesus takes all of that and condenses it into 24 English words. Love. And you think, oh, love, I know love. I can love. I think I can do that. Jesus makes things wonderfully simple here. Love is something so simple that even a child can do it. And not only can a child do it, it is a child's first instinct to love. In his book, The Life We're Looking For, Andy Crouch summarizes the latest research on what actually happens to a baby the moment they come out of mom's womb. Like, what's going on inside a baby's head? What is a baby trying to do? And this is what he writes. 
after an ordinary infant delivery, after the first few startled cries, newborn infants typically spend an hour or so in a stage that doctors call quiet alert. Though they can only focus their vision 8 to 12 inches in front of their face, their eyes are wide open. They are searching with an instinct that's far deeper than intention. They are looking for a face. And when they find a face, especially a face that gazes back at them, they fix their eyes on that face, having found what they were most earnestly looking for. Children, infants, don't stop that search in the delivery room. That, that search, that fixation on faces continues, right? They're always looking for faces, these kids. And if they grow up in an environment where their world is full of happy faces who, who love them and smile at them and make goo-goo-gaga noises at them, children love that. They thrive on that. On the other hand, if children grow up in an environment where there aren't that many faces or where the faces they meet are hard or cold or disinterested, they wither, they weep, they do not thrive. God has literally made us so that our first instinct is love, to look for the face of love. We are literally constructed that way. So love is so simple that even an infant can do it, and, and when an infant does it, not only do they do it, it's powerful stuff. If you've ever watched a nursing mother and her baby lock faces, right? She's looking at him, he's looking at her, and they just keep that position for 10 minutes looking into each other's faces while the nursing happens. That's so simple, but also so strong. Something powerful, something deep is happening there. Love is simple, but love is also very strong. When I think of how love can be simple and strong, I think of um, someone from my past named Mark Breinsma. Mark Breinsma was a developmentally disabled adult with Down syndrome who was a member at Rochester Christian Reformed Church, which was the church that my wife went to when I started dating her. And what was amazing about Mark is he was one of the people who made me feel most welcome at that church, despite his, his Down syndrome. Because Mark was the kind of guy that in the narthex or in the coffee, after the service, if you were a visitor, he knew it, and he would have a big smile on his face, and he would make a beeline for you, didn't matter who you were, and he'd come up to you and he'd say, who are you? Why are you doing here? Where'd you come from? Are you going to come back next week? Are you dating her? <laughs> are you going to marry her? It was absolute, and then afterwards he would do that, and then he would come out, after you finished your conversation, he'd put his arm around you and say, oh, I like you, I like you, you're great. You know, he liked everybody. It was impossible not to be disarmed by that, right? You could not help but feel welcome. Just a simple act of love that was so strong in that narthex. He was the best welcomer in that whole church. Not only was Mark's ability to love other people simple and strong, so was his ability to love God. Okay, so Mark loved to sing, and his favorite hymn was, How Great Thou Art. And so once a year, the church let him get up in front and lead that hymn at the end of the service for the whole congregation. And so Mark would be the song leader, and he'd get up there, and he'd wave his arms, and, and Rochester was a church more like the grave, so there wasn't a lot of arm waving. But Mark would wave his arms, and everybody would be blessed by that hymn. Everybody would be touched by it. Um, and, and 
to show how strong it was, here's a story that I read actually pretty recently. A Christian Reformed minister named John Van Sloten, okay, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, didn't start out as a Christian Reformed minister. Started out as a, uh, a, a businessman, very successful, very driven. But his life wasn't what he wanted, and then he had a Down syndrome child himself. And that just threw him off, and he was just in this downward spiral. And he writes about what changed him. Somehow he found himself at a conference in Rochester, New York. And he said, I went to the church there, and there was this Down syndrome guy, and he was the center of that church's life, and he led worship, and it was amazing. And he said from that moment, he changed, and he, he moved away from business and started to move towards ministry. So Mark's simple act of, of leading worship was enough to have this guy, by the power of the Holy Spirit, of course, change course in his whole life. How many of us can say that the way we love God has changed the course of someone else's life? Not many. Mark Brinesman can say it. Love is simple, but love is strong. Anyone can do this. Which brings me to the bad news of Jesus' love command. The good news is, this is so simple, anyone can do this. The bad news is, nobody can do this. Yes, you heard me right. Good news, everyone can do it. The bad news is, nobody can do it. Love may be simple, but love is also so complicated that sometimes even the best of us in the closest relationships in our life feel like we're getting it absolutely wrong to the extent that we feel like we're absolute beginners. I feel this most poignantly and clearly at the funeral of people I love most in the world. When I go to those funerals, I have a sense of the simplicity and power of love, okay? That these people love me in just plain, ordinary ways and that my whole life is constituted by the way they love me through the power of the Holy Spirit. So I feel that simplicity. But I also feel, and I know that you feel the same way, there's so much that I didn't do. So many questions about their life I never asked. So many things I could have done with them I never took the time. Things I could have found out I never inquired. Why? I was watching TV, looking for funny videos on Instagram. Our love is a clunky instrument. We do our best to love each other, and some of it connects, and some of it just smashes into each other, despite our best intentions. Just about every single person in this room has relationship breakdown at some place in their life. Maybe it's a sibling that you hardly speak to anymore. Or maybe it's a parent-child rift, so painful but surprisingly common. Many of you here have, have, have gone through the pain of divorce. And in every single one of those times, it's not because you didn't try, right? You tried to love. You tried to love this other person, and this other person tried to love you in their own way, but somehow you just completely missed it, and you just smashed, and it turned into a car wreck. Some of that is us, that failure of love, right? We are proud, and we're stubborn, and we want our own way, and we're unwilling to do the vulnerability thing that love takes, right? Some of that's our own sin. But some of that is just love is hard. We say that all the, the law and the prophets hang on 
the love commands, they hang from those pegs, they're dependent on them, but, but love in its own way is dependent on all the law and the prophets, right? Love, all the law and the prophets gives love its definition and its story and its direction. It's because of the law and the prophets that we know that love and loving someone well isn't just letting them do whatever they want, right? It's because of the law and the prophets we know that sometimes love includes confrontation, and conflict. It's because of the law and the prophets that we know that love includes sacrifice. Love is cross-shaped. Love bleeds. Love is really, really hard, and none of us do it right. And it's because we fail at love as well that that first commandment of the two Jesus gives is so, so important. It's so critical. What do I mean by that? Well, let's start with this fundamental question. Why does God ask us to love him with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength? Why, does God, why is it so important to God that we love him? It's not important to him the way it's important to King Lear at the beginning of that great Shakespearean play, okay? Now, I know it's a classical reference, and classical reference in this day and age are, are probably past, but I'm going to try. So King Lear, the very beginning of the play, even if you've never seen it, what happens is the king invites his three daughters into the courtroom and promises to give most of his kingdom to the, the... He says, describe how much you love me, and whichever of you says you love me best, I will give you the most of my kingdom. And it doesn't go well in the play, as you can imagine, right? It's an exercise in vanity for Lear. He just wants to hear people say nice things about him. And some cynical people, mostly non-Christians, would say, well, how's that different than what God's doing when he when he says, love me with everything you have. Is, is it, maybe God just needs to hear, or maybe it's a vanity exercise on God's part. No, that, that totally misses the point. When we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the chief beneficiary of that love is not him, it's us. When we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we put ourselves in the position, in the place where we thrive Loving God is not for him, it's for us. Because we are love creatures, right? We said that at the beginning, right from the very beginning, right from our first breath, we're looking for a face. Every human being is going to love and worship something. And if you love and worship the wrong thing, if you get your loves wrong, everything else starts to fall to pieces. If money and stuff has your love, you'll always be concerned with your money and your stuff and you'll never have enough and you'll be miserable. If your reputation is your love, you'll always be beholden to everybody else's opinion. You'll be a prisoner. If job success, if you are your work, you will have no identity if you ever lose your job and you will be a workaholic. We have an old word for these misdirected loves. It's called idolatry. And we all know we're not supposed to commit idolatry, but that, that's not so much for God's benefit. I mean, of course, God likes it when we praise him and love him, but that's for our benefit. We are the ones who suffer when we get our loves wrong. But when you turn your love towards God wholeheartedly, when you give your whole being towards God in love and you turn your face towards him, what you will find is that the face that looks back at you has already been looking at you in love since before your face turned towards him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us and loved us. 
you turn your face wholeheartedly towards God and you will find there a face that has long been turned wholeheartedly towards you for your salvation. You will find yourself in an infinite stream of love. It's enough to overcome all the miserable failures of your life. It's enough to, to fix all those busted relationships that you've made a mess of when you didn't get love right. It's enough to hold you steady in anything. Is God pleased when you love him? Yes. But the main beneficiary of that love relationship is you. Being a human is hard, right? You figured that out by now. Being a human is hard. You know that. So you're going to do this thing. You want to put yourself in the best possible position, which is right in the center of his love. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for um, this commandment which so clearly lays out for us how you would have us live and where you would have us situate our lives. We admit to you the failures of our love. Um, we don't love each other perfectly at all. And we know we don't always love you perfectly either. Here in this place, um, we recommit ourselves. We turn our face towards you and we ask that you would fill us up again. In Christ's name, amen.